back. Thanks out to Pete for taking my place and for others who took care of Wednesday nights. And it's good to be back in the pulpit. Genesis chapter 28 this morning. It's also good to be back where it's a little cooler, actually. <laughs> Genesis chapter 28. Our scripture reading will be our text this morning. One thing I want to mention this morning to pray for our upcoming business meeting. That'll be three weeks on Sunday after church. We have our fellowship dinner on the 8th, and then our business meeting will follow, and I'd encourage you to attend. Not everybody attends all the time, and uh, yet because you come here, we consider you all members and would uh, encourage you to be part of our business. We have some important things to discuss this year. One of those is our finances, and though we don't like to talk about money as a church because People think churches always have their hand out. Nevertheless, it is an important subject if we're going to continue to function. And our um, income this year is falling a little short of our expenses. And so we have some things to discuss in regards to that and pray about and decide. So um, you're all part of that. Our ministry, we encourage you to attend. We have some things to discuss in regards to uh, our church future and leadership as well. So keep that meeting in your prayers. And if you can, please attend. We value your input as well. So keep that in your prayers. Okay, Genesis chapter 28, we left off in verse 10. So let's pick it up there and read through the end of the chapter. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house, and all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness to us, Father. Thank you that you, though an almighty God, an awesome God, the creator God, there's a God who loves his own, a God who, is in, who gave himself for his own. Thank you that the Lord Jesus went to the cross. For, Father, though we rebelled against you and have sinned against you, Father, you and your great love has give, send, send us a remedy for that sin, for the payment that you require. You sent your only son, the Lord Jesus, to take our sin, all of our sin, on himself on the cross. You, you rose him victoriously from the dead, Father, so that we could have the victory, so we could enter into that victory by faith and have the gift of the forgiveness, the gift of reconciliation, the gift of acceptance, the gift of the assurance of eternal heaven. And Father, thank you that in heaven, Jesus is, con is com 
is preparing a place for us. He is preparing a place for the, his own, Father, and we look forward to that time when we see him face to face. And Father, in the meantime, you've called us here to serve you, to live for you, to enjoy you in our daily lives. And Father, we pray that today you would instruct us in the way we should go. Help us to be mindful of the purposes you have for us. Help us to remember the lost around us, Father. There's many friends and family members who do not know they're going to heaven, who, have, who, have, who are estranged from you, Father. And we just pray that you give us the, the boldness and the love and the concern and the willingness to share with them the good news of your love for them and your saving grace. And so be our teacher and guide today, Father. Prepare our hearts. May we be excited to see what your word has to say to us today. May our hearts be open to you and your spirit that you might have free course in us to accomplish your will in teaching us, instructing us, and correcting us, and leading us today. And Father, we just pray for those who aren't with us today that you'd watch over them wherever they are at as well. And Father, for those who are going through trials, some we are aware of, some we are unaware of, Father, we just pray that you would be a present help in their troubles as well. So be glorified today as we study your word and as we remember our Savior in the Lord's table. May he be our focus and be glorified today, we pray in Jesus' name. Here we see in this chapter the, the somewhat familiar story of Jacob's ladder. And God here appears to Jacob in a dream, doesn't he? And he reaches down to Jacob and declares to him his will in the form of a promise, a covenant promise, the Abrahamic covenant for Jacob. And Jacob here learns God's plans for him. God confronts him, and he learns that God has plans for him, and that plan involved being the bearer of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant that God had given to Abraham that they would be continued and carried on through the family of, Joseph, of Jacob. So what about this ladder and these angels that we find here as, as Jacob here lays down in this place and has this dream? What does that represent? Well, there's a parallel passage somewhat in the book of John, so let's turn to the New Testament, to John chapter 1, and maybe gain a little insight as we compare Scripture with Scripture to see what Jesus had to say about this same type of thing. John chapter 1, if you want to turn with me. Let's pick it up in verse 45 where it says, The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And so here we have the similar discussion, don't we? The similar illustration, this idea of a ladder and angels descending upon the Son of God. Here, when Jesus was on the earth, he had come to earth. Jesus is at the bottom of the ladder Yet back, if you're back in Genesis chapter 28, we find the Lord at the top of the ladder. And so we have the same symbology here mentioned in both of these accounts. And so this ladder likely represents here in Genesis chapter 28, 
represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And the mention in John chapter 1 is probably a look forward to what the, when hereafter, later on, when they will see, is probably a reference to the kingdom reign of Christ when angels will minister to Jesus as he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. But here we find him at the top of the ladder. And so why this illustration? It's, and I think in this we find that the lesson that Jesus is the only way we have access to God, whether he is... In this illustration, at the top of the ladder, and the, and the other is at the bottom, when the angels are ministering to him, we find he is the only way that we can approach God. He is the way through we have access. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him we both, that is Jew and Gentile, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. It is through Jesus that we can have access to God. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, and for those of you who have put your faith in Christ, Christ you are justified, you are declared right by faith in, the, in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our relationship with God has been settled and restored. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, it's through him we have access to God. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. And we know the problem with mankind is that we've been, our access to God is prevented because of sin. Because God is a holy God and we are sinful creatures. We, can, we are incompatible in our relationship and fellowship. And Jesus came to resolve that. He, he provided access because of the cleansing of the cross, because of the forgiveness that's available at the cross. And therefore, when we trust him as our Savior, we have access to God, not on our merits. The Bible tells us in Hebrews to come boldly before the throne of grace, but we come boldly not in our own merits. We stand in his merits. We have access to him. That is also why when, we can sit, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple, the veil that separated the presence of God from the presence of man was rent from top to bottom because we have access to God through Jesus Christ. And so the question before us is, this morning is where do we stand before God? Are we standing in our own merits, in our own righteousness, in our own goodness? Or are we standing in the merits of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, who provided access to God? And then we freely go in and out and find pasture. And so that's the representation here. We have access to God through the Lord Jehovah, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might also ask the question, how does God, does God still speak to us in dreams that way? Well, we find today that, that God speaks to us through his word. And he tells us that in Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2 says this, God, who at various time and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, and so in the past, before the Bible was completed, God used various means and ways to speak through the prophets to mankind. But, or has now in these last days, and the day and age in which we live and are considered the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And so today God is speaking through his Son. And what we find today in the New Testament is the words of Jesus Christ, the life of Christ, the teachings of Christ propagated through the apostles. And that's why Paul said in Acts 20, in regards to his, fulfilling his responsibility before God to the church and the leaders at Ephesus, he says, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He declared the word of God. And that's why his instructions to pastors such as Timothy were to preach the word. 
2 Timothy 4, 2, or in Titus, teach things which become sound doctrine. So today God speaks to us through his word. You might say God confronts us through his word. Here God confronted, met with Jacob, told him what he expected of him, but today he declares his will, his instructions through his written word to you and I today. And so when we open the Bible, we are really confronted with the mind of Christ, with the word of God, the will of God, as God sometimes teaches, sometimes rebukes us, corrects us, instructs us, and guides us in our lives. Well, as we move on to verse 13, here we find what God declared to Jacob was the affirmation of the covenant. We had seen earlier in this chapter that Jacob had passed on the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. He recognized that the blessings that God had given to Abraham went to Isaac and then on to Jacob, and, and, and Isaac had confirmed that earlier in this chapter. But here God himself affirms the covenant to, to Jacob, and we see here the details that we've seen throughout our study of Abraham and Isaac, the promise that God had made to them. But one thing I want you to note this morning is the is the unconditional nature of the covenant and the authority of the covenant. Verse 13 here tells us in this chapter, if I get on the right page, tells us, Behold, he says, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and God of Isaac, the land in which, I, he, I, I, which you lie, I will give you and your descendants. God is the authority behind the covenant. He, this is a promise he is going to keep, and it is also it is an unconditional Sometimes the promises of God are conditional. If here's a promise, if you if you trust me, you'll be blessed. If you submit, you'll be blessed. This is an unconditional promise. This is something God is going to accomplish, no matter how man responds to it. And that's why He says in verse thirteen, "I will," and why He says in verse fourteen two times, "I shall." This is something God is going to accomplish. He is going to do, regardless of man's response. God is going to accomplish these things of making of Abraham and the family of Abraham a great nation. Through him, we, we find the blessing that came to the world. We see that fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something God will accomplish and will continue to accomplish because it is not yet fully accomplished. You might ask, you know, what about then? In Deuteronomy, we find these, these warnings and, and blessings of, mentioned by Moses that if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you won't, you'll be cursed. And that, first of all, is in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. The law, the Ten Commandments, and all that went with it given to, to Israel. And that was conditional. And if they submitted to God's instructions, they would experience great blessing and bounty in their life. But if they rebelled, they would experience cursing from God, judgment from God, and discipline from God. And those things happened in both cases. But those were about Israel's relationship to God as his chosen people and whether they would choose to follow him or enjoy him or not. The Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional promise that God will accomplish. And that's what he tells Jacob. I'm going to accomplish this, and I'm going to use you and your family to do that in this case. You know, today, Jesus has said something as well. He states, I will. I will build my church. Now, the church is in, re in reference to, in, to the body of believers. It extends beyond brick and mortar to bodies, to people. Those who have trusted Christ their Savior are considered part of the universal church of Christ. And that's what he's doing today. He is building his church. He is going to accomplish that. We see that church described as the bride that's later to present it to Christ in the end times. But he is building his church, but he is choosing to use you and I as instruments to do that, isn't he? 
But he's going to accomplish it whether you and I participate or not because God buries his workmen and carries on his work. He is building his church. That's what Jesus is up to today. And if we're unwilling, he'll just find someone else because he is going to accomplish that work of saving souls and adding people to his family. Now, he goes on to say, not only does he affirm the Abrahamic covenant here to Jacob, but we find some additional promises in verse 15. Three related promises. Three things he mentions in verse 15 that are, that are related. The first thing he says, behold, I am with you. Behold, he says. Behold means stand still. Shut your mouth. Be quiet. Consider attentively. It's like catching something on the news that all of a sudden you tell your, your family, quiet, 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 listen to this, listen to this. That's what God is saying. Behold, there's something wonderful I'm going to tell you, something you need to stop and pay attention to. You know, in other words, get off your cell phone, put, put your tablet away, and, and pay attention. This is important. And he says, I will be with you. I, the I am, the God, of, the King of kings and Lord of lords is going to be with you. And we find this often repeated in Scripture, this promise that God will be with you. But what does that really mean? What's the nature of that promise? And this is more than omnipresence. This is not, you know, we recognize that God is everywhere. He sees all and knows all. But I don't think that's a reference when he says, I am with you. That's more personal, isn't it? There's personal pronouns in that, I and you. And that means this is a special promise of God's personal engagement in the lives of those serving him and carrying on his work. I'm going to be with you. It's his personal engagement, his personal support. And therefore, it's not one of, you know, I'm watching you because I see all, but instead, I am helping, I'm watching over, I'm strengthening, enabling, encouraging, guiding, teaching, instructing, leading, and so on. He's engaged with us. That's his promise. He, he, when he sends us out to do a work, and we all have gifts that God has given us to perform, to contribute to the body of Christ, the work of Christ. We've all been called to the great commission of sharing the good news with the world around us. God's saying, you're not alone in this. I didn't just send you out all by yourself and say, see you later. He says, I am with you. That's the encouraging thing. God is with those who are carrying on his work. And that's a delightful promise that I am with you. You're not alone. I always found it a great comfort as a parent that when my kids left the home to do whatever they were doing, play with friends, play sports, go to sc school or whatever, that, you know, as a father, you're not, you're not always with them. You can't always protect them. You need to try to give them some instructions and see if they'll even listen a little bit. But I knew that God was with them. They had a father who cared for them, who loved them, who watched over them, and you could rest in his care for them. Well, God is with us as well in the work he calls us to do. And that's important because we need him 24-7. When you consider the Bible's description of mankind in our sinful, lost condition, we find not a pretty picture. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6 says we're not sufficient of ourselves to think anything of us as of ourselves are sufficiencies of God. God says we're insufficient to live lives on our own. In Romans 8, 3, we're described as being weak in the flesh, weak to resist temptation, weak to live righteously as God intended. In 1 Peter 2, 25, we're described as sheep going astray. We have a tendency to stray from God and the things of God. And that's not a pretty picture. And that's all because of sin, because sin has created a rebellion in our hearts against the things of God. But sin has also disconnected us from God. And that's where people are at today. They're disconnected from reality. What's that reality? It's the reality that God is creator. We are the created. 
And therefore, his word is our instruction book. They're disconnected from reality. And we think people are finding reality in all the pleasures and fulfillments of life apart from God. But that's, that's just the facade. That's a mirage. Reality, the reality is God has created us and he has a purpose for us and meaning for us. But that is why in this world today, there's such an identity of crisis. Because people are alienated from the life of God. They're disconnected from God. And they might find a, a moment of fulfillment and pleasure in, in, in their own lives. But they're disconnected from reality. We don't know who we are, why we're here, or where we're going. What's the, what's the meaning of it all, the purpose of it all? We don't have answers for the, for the meaning of life apart from God, our Creator. And in reality, that disconnection from God, that alienation from the life of God, is really what's behind cancel culture, as we call it today. You know, that is, if you don't agree with me, or the perceived masses, you're worthless. You're canceled. You're the enemy. That's what people think today. They're afraid of difference of opinions because they don't have a foundation to stand on. There's no true foundation to stand on of truth. And so your difference of opinion is a risk to me because my foundation is shaky. So I'm going to just cancel you and make you an enemy so my, so my opinions are no longer at risk. And that's because they're disconnected from the truth from the God of truth, the foundation of truth, from Jesus Christ himself, who is our rock, our firm foundation. And that's why only in Christ do we find stability. And we're not at risk when someone has a difference of opinion because the truth is our foundation. And where the, whereas the unsaved are looking for their identity, for their meaning, for stability in all the wrong places, yet that void, that hunger that is really in our hearts to be connected, to find reality, is only found in God himself because that's the facts. You can create your own pseudo-reality and call it a reality, but the fact is God is the creator and life is, be, is meant to be lived in a relationship with him, connected to him, enjoying him. And that's why the good news is, is that relationship is restored through Jesus Christ who took the punishment for our sins so that we could be reconnected. We call it, the Bible calls it reconciliation. We can be reconciled to God and then once again find meaning, identity, and purpose. And then we can enjoy the reality of, I am with you. That's when we can really enjoy that. Because we know God is our Savior and, he, and Him is our Father. And God is with us. And so God confronts us with these things, doesn't He? In fact, today this might be God's confrontation of you. Because God cares for you and wants to draw each of us to Himself. Now, related to that is the next promise he makes in verse 15, where he, where he says, I will keep you wherever you go. I'm going to keep you. I'm with you, and that presence is going to keep you. This involves protection and preservation, doesn't it? I will keep you. It really is reassuring to have the protected, a presence, protected presence of God with us. And what this implies is that God keeps us for the duration of his purpose for us. See, God has a purpose for us. That's reality. You know, we all joke about, you know, the time of, our, time of our death. We have a birthday and we have a death date established before us, but that death day is established by God, who is the giver, giver of life. And that death day will come when he's through with us, when our purpose is fulfilled, because this is not our permanent home. Heaven is our home. Jesus is preparing that place. We have a heavenly address if you're a Christian here today, and we're here to fulfill a purpose. Part of that purpose may be to contribute to society through our, 
through our jobs. It may be raising our family. It could be encouraging the saints, ministering in the church, reaching the lost, serving our community. Whatever it is, we have a purpose. You know what? And if we do it for the glory of God in service towards God, there's a promise that he's going to keep us. Joshua was told this. Remember when Joshua was about to lead people into the Holy Land? It says this in Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, a servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. As I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. God was going to preserve them. He was going to use Joshua to help Israel capture the, the promised land. He was going to protect them. No one's going to stand against you. You don't have to fear and run, 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 run and hide because of the size of the armies that you face, the size of the giants you may face, because I am with you. I am going to accomplish this. I'm going to keep you. And that's God's promise to this. Paul also discovered this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He describes of being pressed beyond measure, above strength, despaired even of life, yet God delivered. And he was amazed. He thought that was the end. Whatever occasion Paul was referring to, there's a difference of opinions, what that might refer to, he was in a situation of despaired of life. And yet he says, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who has the power to raise the dead, or God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver and whom we trust, he will still deliver us. No man can stand before you. As long as God has a purpose for you, we don't have to cower in fear in, your, in taking a stand for Christ and living for Christ and witnessing for Christ. His God is with us. He will keep us. And that's why he says later in 2 Timothy chapter 1, For this reason I also suffer these things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. And while some people use that as an eternal security verse, and it may be, I think it's in the context of, of physical preservation. God's going to keep me until that day. Now that day for him was the return of the Lord. Paul expected to see the Lord return before he passed on, and that didn't happen. But his day was when he came to meet the Lord. But God kept him. And we have the same promise. In Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, it says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself, I love that, he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. That's the promise that God gave to Jacob here. And the promise he gives us. That we can live openly and boldly for the cause of Christ with no fear, because we're, we're going to be here. Until God's through with us, until our purpose is fulfilled. And that's why he goes on in the third aspect of this promise here in verse 15. And I will bring you back to this land. Remember, much of their promise revolved around the promised land. We call it the holy land, the promised land. And God says, I'm going to bring you back. Now there may have been a near and, and far fulfillment to that. Because Jacob did return with his wife and family after he found a wife and had some children and all his possessions. And after the famine of Joseph's time, we find that Jacob's bones were carried back as well. They carried back when Moses and then, and then Joshua, as we read, led Israel back to the promised land. They came back then. 
During the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, we find Israel coming back once again to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And yet in the future, this promise will be fully fulfilled when under the king of kings, Jesus gathers his people. There's many references, but in Jeremiah 37, verse 8, he says, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth, along, among them the blind and lame, and so on and so on. He's going to bring his people back someday in that millennial time, kingdom to come, to populate his kingdom. You know, I will bring you back. And what he's saying is, I'm going to keep my promise. That's all he's saying there. I just got through promising you that you're going to populate this, this promised land. He says, though you're going to be gone for a while, and through history, a few, a few different periods, I will bring you back. I am going to keep my promise. That's what God is saying. And so don't worry about what it looks like in the meantime. God keeps his promises. And this one was the fulfillment of the covenant promise he had given originally to Abraham. So Jacob's response then we find in verse 16. He woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. Now I think we see somewhat of a limited, Jacob's limited view of God here, that he's that God was, was isolated to a place, and this rock he mentioned was going to be his house, and maybe Jacob had a limited understanding of God. And yet, he, there's two aspects of his response here. The first involved worship. In these verses, we see that he acknowledged God's presence, and he also expressed a fear of the Lord. He was afraid. He had a fear. He recognized that God is a God to be awesomely respected. And he also, we see that he poured oil on this rock as he dedicated the pillar. He poured oil, which is an act of consecration and dedication. And then he set up his pillar as a pillar, you might say. Set up this pillar he, he had used for his head, this rock, and as a pillar, and he consecrated it as a memorial to God, which is an act of worship. These are all various acts of worship. He acknowledged God's presence. He expressed the fear of the Lord. He, de he consecrated that place. And then he set up this memorial, which tells us a little bit what worship involves, doesn't it, for us. We talk about worship today, but worship here includes acknowledgement of God, an awesome respect of God, the fear of the Lord, a dedication to God, and a giving glory to God. Those elements are all in this here, all what Jacob did in worship of God. And... And, that's the, that, and that is what is involved in worship. And it isn't always what's true in our churches today. Today, worship is more about my feeling than about God's glory, isn't it? What you don't see here is a mentality that thinks that God's sole objective is for me to have fun. Bless my plans, make my life better, make me happy. And there is joy in serving Jesus but it is the byproduct of bringing glory to God, true worship to God, acknowledgement of who he is, a re awesome respect for him, a dedication to him, a consecration to him, and a desire to bring glory to him. And when we find God as the center of our worship is when we truly find the fullness of joy he intended for us. The next thing Jacob does is he makes a vow. Then in verse 20, he's going to make a vow saying. Now this vow has been taken two ways in the Bible. At the first glance, it kind of seems like he's bargaining with God. And Jacob was known as a bargainer, you know, hard bargainer, a chiseler, a deceiver. Yet some think that the word if could just as well be translated since. This could be a sincere vow, where he would say, since God will be with me, and since he will keep me, and since he will provide for me, since he'll bring me back here, then the Lord will be my God. 
That could be possible. We really don't know for sure which, which aspect it is. And if that's the case, it's a right follow-up to worship, isn't it? It involves service surrender to, to God and, and recognizing God as the Lord of his life. It's a, and that's the true test of worship rea rea in reality, isn't it? That beyond this experience, this, this time of which God appeared to him and Jacob responds in worship, it had a, an, a, then an effect on his life. And that's always a test, you know, because the true test of Sunday worship comes on Monday morning, doesn't it? Do the songs we sung um, find reality in our lives Monday through Friday or Saturday or Sunday, whatever? Or do those songs we've sung make us not so honest and really we didn't really intend what we sung? You see, there's a, there's a sincerity there, isn't a true uh, in worship that ought to be there. But... Is the other aspect true? And, you know, you can pick what you want. Is the fact that Jacob here was in his limited knowledge of God, was bargaining with God, where he says, if God does this, if God does that, if God does the other thing, then he can be my God. That's how it appears. Then he will be my God. That's what it appears on the surface in some versions, and which obviously is the wrong way. We don't bargain with God. We recognize him as God. We acknowledge him as God. And when that happens, God wants a today response. That was, in that case, it would be an incorrect response to, the, to God's confrontation with Jacob and the instructions he gave him. So we're not sure which is true, but these two scenarios seem to sum, sum up most Christians, doesn't it? Those who stand in true worship and awe of God and those who are in it for what it does for them. So, responding to the confrontation of God, that's what we learn here. How should we respond to God? We know God appears to, appears to Jacob several times, at least five times. And we got a, when God confronts us, he expects a response. When he gives us instructions, he expects us to listen. We see others in their special times of confrontation with God and their response in, in the person of Moses at the burning bush. When Moses said, first of all, here I am, when God says, calls him, he says, here I am, and later he also says, who am I? Interesting. When God told him what gave him the job he had for him to do, he says, who am I to accomplish these things? There's a mark of humility, wasn't there? And Mo while Moses did argue with God, he did go out in the power of God and accomplish great things, did he not? How about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 and his vision of God? When he got a glimpse of God, when he was confronted with the reality of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God, verse 5 says, woe is me, he said. I, I am a sinner, if I can paraphrase a little bit when he stood before the righteous and holiness of God. Who, woe is me. And yet just a few sentences later, when God says, we need, we need someone to, to, we got a job to do, we need someone to go, and Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. Paul, when he was confronted with the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, in Acts 9, verse 6, he says, trembling, trembling, he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And what's interesting in all these times of confrontation with God when God confronted them, when God presented himself to them, we see two things that's, that jump off the page. One is humility. The other is submission. And I say that's the right worshipful response. Humility, because we recognize that God is King of kings and Lord of lords. We are his created, and we need him. And this, then following on his heels is submission. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, I recognize you have a will for me. You have instructions for me. You have directions for me. Humility and submission. 
So what happens when we're confronted by God? As I mentioned, in reality, we are confronted by God every time we open the Bible. Every time we read the Bible. Be and, because it's, and it's because the Bible is a living book that demands a response. God says that in Isaiah 55. He says, my word is going to accomplish what I please. It's a living book. When it's given out, there's going to be a response. Now, some reject it, some accept it, but there's going to be a response. It's a living book. Hebrews 4.12 mentions, mentions that it's a living book as well and that it pierces. It, it convicts us to the depth of our being. It's a living book. And so every time we open the Bible, God wants a response. Are you going to say, thank you, that was great. Thank you for t showing me that. Or are we going to say, you know, I'm not so sure about that. You know, maybe the Bible's a little outdated. The Bible doesn't really get me. Whatever, we find excuses. God requires a response. So we're confronted by God every time we open the Bible, but I also believe there are special times in our lives, just like these fellows, in which God confronts us with a challenge to the reality of our faith. He wants a challenge. Are we serious and committed about our relationship with him, maybe? Or maybe are we engaged with the work Jesus is doing because Jesus is building his church and he wants to do it in and through me, and he challenges us, maybe, in regards to that. Maybe he's challenging us because we're living a lie. Or maybe because we're living a man-centered Christianity rather than a God-centered one. And whatever it may be, I think there's times in our lives where we all of a sudden realize, am I going to take this seriously or not? Am I going to submit to what the conviction God's bringing me? Maybe there's something in our life that God's been patiently knocking on our door and says, this has got to go, this has got to go. And all of a sudden we wake up and think, boy, this should really go. And there's a crossword of decision. Are we going to be humble and submit or are we going to excuse our way away? In reality, God at those times is inviting us to a closer relationship with him, to a deeper enjoyment of him, to a more fullness of his goodness and grace and joy in our lives. And so we have to ask ourselves, as we consider Jacob's response here, does our confrontations with God produce humility and surrender to God? As they ought. And really, as we consider the Lord's table today, as we remember our Lord in our celebration of his table, we're really confronted with the cross when we consider this, aren't we? God is, 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 is putting himself on display before us because the necessity of the cross points to our sinfulness and God's holiness. Because God is holy and we're sinners, the cross was required. Death was required. A payment was required, and Jesus paid that for us. The work of the cross indicates the depth of God's love for you and I. And God just, when, when we celebrate communion, God lays before us the, the depth of his love. God so loved the world and how big his soul. How much he loved us to take his place and pay for our sins on the cross. The victory of the cross displays the power of God to rescue you and I from the clutches of sin. And will we enter into that by faith? And God challenges us, will you trust me as Savior so you can be delivered from the eternal penalty of sin, which is hell, to the eternal glories of heaven? And that's the victory of the cross. The free offer of the cross, grace, incites a humble response, an awesome response of thanks. It's free. And it leaves, leaves our hearts impressed upon with the depth of God's love and grace when he offers to us forgiveness and eternal life freely. And so as we consider the Lord's table today, as we bring this to a close, may we be humbled and may we be surrendered as we consider the cross of Christ together this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, that he has provided to us access to God. And we celebrate that this morning. 
Father, though a terrible death and bearing the sins of the world as he cried on that cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet, Father, a glorious accomplishment because he paid for the sins of the world. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever. He satisfied your wrath upon sin so that you could freely offer us forgiveness and eternal life. Thank you for that reality. Thank you that you revealed yourself to us, that you've taken time, Father, to present to us the, the work of Christ so that we could know our sins are forgiven, so that we could be reconnected and restored to right relationship with you. And so, Father, as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, may you be impressed upon us the depths of your love and your grace and your kindness to us. And may we respond in true worship, humility, and surrender. In Jesus' name.